Who do we have with us? Is Gori still here? I'm glad you're still here. Gori Stark is an artist, author, and the CEO of a medical software company in San Diego. His multimedia lectures on art and music all over the world provide a unique perspective by combining the artist's personal biographies, art history, and world historical events that influence the artists. Gori holds degrees in mechanical engineering and computer science from the Technion in Israel. His art topics include Picasso, Van Gogh, Chagall, Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera, all Jewish, right? Yes. Okay. Diego Rivera, right. No one knows, but uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Rembrandt, and degenerate art, um, and, and many others. His musical topics include the history of jazz, American folk music, the history of rock and roll, the Beatles in the 60s. Can you tie those into a Jewish theme when we can do those? The Beatles were all Jewish, right? Okay. Ah, well, their manager, right? Um, born in Israel, Brian Epstein. Born in Israel, Gori moved to the United States 30 years ago um, with his distinctively strong and brilliant watercolors. So he's an artist as well. Gori made a name for himself as an artist in Israel, Denver, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego, where he participates in numerous shows, exhibitions, and galleries. So obviously, he is not an accomplished individual and shouldn't make any of you feel bad about things that you may not have done in life. Please join me in welcoming Guri Stark to Orange County, California. Okay, good Thank you, thank you. Thank you for the beautiful introduction. Uh, let's see. Today uh, is different than most of my lectures, uh, and the reason is because it's a two-for-one. I don't know how much you paid for this, but you get two-for-one. You get two artists for the price of one. Uh, and the reason I'm talking about two today is because there is a connection between them themselves and a connection between them and one very important topic which will be the theme for today which is the foundation of the city of Tel Aviv and it's very appropriate today to talk about that as we are celebrating 70 years of Israel so I'll go through a little bit of history you may or may not know that it's gonna be a good refresher hopefully for some of them about what happened so many years ago 70 and 100 and 110 years ago uh, so, uh, so that's what we're going to go talk about today. Uh, so, uh, like Ari said, I am, uh, I'm, uh, that's my passion. Forget my, what I do for the high-tech area, that's my daily life, but what I really, really like to do is I like to paint, I'm an artist, I like to play music, and I like to give lectures. And about 15 years ago is when I started giving lectures like that around the world. And, and the reason I'm doing it is not only as a way to give back to the community, um, but also because I believe art is a common denominator uh, among everybody, regardless of you know religion, politics, uh, height, weight, size, whatever. Uh, everybody likes art. Everybody can talk about art from a common point of view. So I decided that you know if the world is focusing on art, uh, it's going to be a better world. So it is my little way of contributing to this, of talking about art, and hopefully everybody will be more focused on art as we go forward. So that's my little spiel. Uh, talking about Nahum Gutman, first let me ask you, how many of you know who Nahum Gutman is or heard about it? I see one hand here. Two, three, okay. Not too many, okay. By the end of today, you will know more about him than when you came in. And how about Rubin, Rubin, Rubin? Okay, the same hands. How many of you own something that any of them painted? Okay, well, if it's an original, you are very rich. <laughs> If it's a copy, you're still, it's still very valuable. Uh, 
So Gutmann uh, was born in, in uh, Bessarabia, uh, which is part of uh, the Russian Empire at that time in, in 1898. And just to put it in perspective, 1898, uh, Van Gogh was born in 1853, and Picasso 1881, and Chagall 1887, and Dali 1904. That's the time. That's the time that Europe was really creating a lot of innovative art and changing what used to be called classical art before that. So the Impressionism, the post-Impressionism, that's the period of time. And if you are in Europe at that time, you are very heavily influenced with, with that. And in some of my other lectures, I talk about the history of art and I explain what Impressionism is and post-Impressionism and Expressionism. And if I'll get invited here, I can go deeper into that. Um, Nahum Gutmann was the fourth child, so the last child, of, uh, of a very famous uh, person. Uh, his name was Simcha Alter, but he was better known as Esbencion. Esbencion was a writer and a teacher, educator, and he was in Russia educating in Hebrew and writing in Hebrew, which was very unique at that time. Um, in 1903, they moved to Odessa, uh, a little bit bigger city, and this is where he met Bialik. Anybody knows who Bialik was? Most of you, I hope. Bialik became uh, the national uh, poet for Israel over, t over the years. I grew up learning his poetry. I could recite a lot of his songs. Um, and uh, at that time, he was still, of course, in Europe before he immigrated uh, to Israel. So uh, the Gutman family and the Bialik family became friends. And later on, you'll see that Nahum Gutman played a role in illustrating the books or the poem books that uh, Bialik wrote. Um, the family immigrated to Israel in 1905. Remember 1905, the country was founded in 1948, so that's way, way, way before anything happened in Israel. They immigrated to Israel, uh, all of them, and they settled in Yafo. Tel Aviv did not exist in that time. There was nothing there, just dunes, sand dunes. So they settled in Jaffa, Yafo. And uh, later on, uh, he went to study in the Gymnasia Herzliya, which was a very famous high school. Still exists today, but not in the original building, because that was destroyed, and I'll talk about it. Uh, but very famous. But he was not a good student. He was probably like most artists. His head was in the cloud, uh, feet not necessarily on the ground. So he was not a good student. But still yet, he was able to get into a very important school in Jerusalem, an art school called Betzalel. And the reason he was able to get into there is because his father, his famous father, was the friend of the founder of the school. So sometimes you need connections uh, in order to, to get into that. After they settled in Jaffa, the family moved to Ahuzat Bait. Anybody heard about that little place before? Ahuzat Bait was the first name of Tel Aviv. The name of Tel Aviv changed after they founded it, but the first name was Ahuzat Bait. So he was a child that grew up in Tel Aviv when Tel Aviv was just founded. So Tel Aviv as a little child, and he as a little child, and he grew up, and this is the reason we like him so much, because he grew up and documented everything he saw around him in his paintings, in his drawings, in his books that he wrote, everything that he wrote came very authentically from that period of time. Just to put a little bit more historical context into that, uh, 1917, uh, the Turks expelled all the Jews from Jaffa. Uh, now, 1917 was almost the end of the First World War, if you remember, 1914 to 1918. Until then, the Turks really controlled the whole area. 
for 400 years until the end of the World War. They, they controlled the area. So the Turks were really it at that time, controlling the area. And they were friends of the Arabs over there. And because the Arabs did not like to see a growing Jewish community, they started having all kinds of creating problems. And the Turks expelled the Jews out of, out of Jaffa. He, as a child, he documented these in his memories. And then later on, as an adult, he wrote a book about that. That book won a lot of prizes. You see the cover of the book on the right. Uh, it's called Shvil Klipota Kaptabuzim. Anybody here speaks Hebrew? A little bit. In, in English, it's the, the trail of uh, orange peels. And he actually documents the, the uh, um, problems or the uh, adventures that they had as the family was expelled from Jaffa to the north of the country. And he documented that in that book. Uh, so very interesting book to try and read. He went to Betzalel in 1920, and he wasn't happy. Like many other very young artists at the time, they did not like what's going on in Betzalel. Betzalel was a new school, but was very traditional, conservative in what they taught as art, what they taught as good art. And there was a new generation of artists that started in the country, and they wanted to do different type of art. They, want, they call it the new Eretz Israel art. They wanted to document things they see around them, and not things that relate to the diaspora type of Jews. And he did not like what he saw over there. And what did he do? He actually left the Betzalel, and also left the country. And he went to Europe for about six years. He traveled in Europe. And as we talked about a minute ago, what happened in Europe at that time in the art community was very influential on him. So initially he went to Vienna, and then he went to Berlin, and then he went obviously to Paris, which was the center of art at the time uh, in Europe, and got influenced by a lot, of, uh, a lot of the artists there. He returned to Israel six years later in 1926, and he joined that movement of new artists. And if you own any Israeli art by some of those artists like Israel Paldi, Reuven Rubin, Siona Tajer, all of these, these are the artists that created the new type of art, and today uh, it's, it's, very, it's very valuable. And then in 1928, he met his wife, Dora, and uh, married, and they had a son, Hemi, uh, that lives until now. Uh, what he documented in his biography said, uh, we all wanted to portray the local colors and the light that joins objects together. We felt like heroes going out to conquer nature as it is, not as we were taught. And he is referring here to what he was taught in Betzalel. And he says, no, no, that's not what I see around. I want to paint what I see around and my perception of what's going on. And he was rebelling against that. Uh, one of the artists, that, or two of the artists that he uh, was influenced while in Europe were uh, Matisse. I think you all know Henry Matisse and uh, Henry Rousseau, two Henrys. Uh, Matisse is obviously well known for, uh, he was a post-impressionist and he's well known for very bold colors. And the post-impressionists, as they wanted to express their emotions, they did it, he did it with very, very bold colors, almost out of the tube, not mixing uh, strong colors. Well, Rousseau was an interesting artist that never really went to school and taught himself art, and he was what we call naive art. And he came back with these two influences and started his own style of art, which was uh, similar to what he saw from them. Painting in oils, painting a lot in watercolors, painting right out of the tube with big chunks of colors, and so on. What was very unique to him is that he was completely, um, I don't want to say ignorant, but he ignored the politics around him. 
And of course, there was tension between Jews and Arabs all the way from those days, and he basically ignored what he saw that. For him, he was fascinated by the Arabs. He was fascinated by the farmers and their connection to the land. He was fascinated by the donkeys and by the cows and by the sheep, and he was painting them. He was fascinated by the, the, the sheep herders playing flute while they are taking the herds around. And he looked at that and said, this is what Eretz Israel is all about. For him, it was an ideal harmony going on. And everything around that, he didn't care. So starting to look at some of them, uh, you may have seen this one. It's a very famous one, Resting at Noon. And uh, look at the warm colors. Uh, not a lot of mixing colors. And you can see the atmosphere. And look at the big city around, right? A lot of high rises. Here, that's kind of a self-portrait on the right and another self-portrait on the left together with his wife. These early paintings show you that these guys had talent more than you can think because later on as they uh, evolve in their art, you sometimes ask yourself that they really know how to paint. Uh, think about Picasso as an example. But if you look at the early paintings, you see they actually do know that. Um, we'll take a little break from art for a second and talk about Tel Aviv. Uh, Tel Aviv today is, uh, Tel Aviv Metro is the largest uh, metro in Israel. Tel Aviv per se as a city has about 450,000 people in it, but Tel Aviv Metro has 3.8 million. Uh, in a country that is about 8 million, that's uh, half of the population lives in the Tel Aviv Metro in Israel. We all, we all knew that. Uh, but Tel Aviv was founded 110 years ago. Next year is going to be 110 years. On the outskirts of Jaffa. Um, and only in 1950, two years after it was founded, it was uh, uh, merged into one municipality, Jaffa and Tel Aviv. Today, officially, it's called Tel Aviv Jaffa as, as one municipality. As we talk about Jaffa, Jaffa is a very historic city, where Tel Aviv is relatively new. Jaffa has been around since the biblical days. And as you remember, uh, Jonah sailed for, to Tarshish from Jaffa. Jaffa was a very important port, probably the only port at that time. So, you know, the port to which Cedarwood brought for the temple, for Solomon's temple. Now, there is a, there is a port in Haifa, right? Why didn't they stop in Haifa and, and dropped it over there? Well, there was no port in Haifa at that time. So the only port that existed and was meaningful at that time was Jaffa. And Jaffa was fortified. Uh, if you've been in the old Jaffa, you'll see the fortification. And you'll see that they're not unified, similar to what you see in Jerusalem on the walls. There are many different layers, and each la layer is a different period. Here you can see that a lot of people had interest in Jaffa. And uh, all the way from the medieval days, in which uh, the first crusader uh, took over Jaffa and fortified it, and, and then Saladin took it over and, and fortified it more, and then the Mamluks took it over and ruined the fortification, and the Ottomans captured it, and uh, so it was a lot of hand, changing hands in this area because it was so strategically located as, as a port. Um, but really, all that period of time, the population there was very, very small. We talk about a few hundreds of people living in, the, in this area. Only in the 19th century, where commerce started to evolve, and uh, orange, you know, Jaffa oranges, they started trading them and silk and so on, the population started to grow. And it became all the way to uh, 17,000 people in Jaffa by the, end, by the end of that period. But the Jewish population was still very, very small initially. And in 1882, 
It was only 1500. Now the first Jews to go outside of the borders of Jaffa were the Yemenite Jews, believe it or not. Yemenite Jews. So there are a lot of Yemenite neighborhoods in Tel Aviv that you can get the best food over there even today. And I highly recommend to go there. So Kerem Ataymani, which is a, a kind of a collection of uh, Yemenite neighborhoods, is a very popular place in Tel Aviv. But it's important to remember that the Yemenites is, went, left Jaffa and established the first neighborhood, Machne Yehuda, Machne Yosef, Shkunat uh, Shabazi. These are all neighborhoods that were created and established by Yemenite Jews initially. Now, the first Aliyah from Europe to Israel happened in 1880. That's after the Kishinev pogroms, and uh, tens of thousands of Jews fled Europe and came to Israel. These are now different types of Jews. They are mostly Ashkenazi Jews. They are very religious, and many of them settled in that area outside of Jaffa. So that was kind of the beginning of Tel Aviv, was from those settlers that came in, in the first Aliyah. Uh, and then in 1906, there was a second Aliyah, uh, second Aliyah, also, also from Europe, also Ashkenazi mostly, and they were more organized and they started actually creating something, a, a brand new city. And when you start a brand new city from scratch, when there is no infrastructure whatsoever and you have nothing all to fix, you can have a vision of how it should be. It should be a modern city with wide streets, with water flowing to every house. Today you think it's trivial, but at that time it was not trivial. So. Uh, uh, they wanted to design the city from the beginning in the right way. I don't know if you drive today through Allenby Street if you think that that was designed properly, but at that time it was very modern, very broad, uh, water flowing to every, to every house. And uh, you know, with Jewish funds, they started buying land, and they're able to initially accumulate 12 acres of sand dunes, which is where the city started outside of Jaffa outside of the borders of Jaffa. Uh, this is Tel Aviv in the 20s and the 30s. Uh, it doesn't look like this anymore. Even the cars don't look like this anymore. And uh, this street here, which is Herzl Street, uh, and at the end of the street, the building that you see is Gymnasia Herzliya, that high school that Gutmann uh, attended. Uh, beautiful building. It's so, such a shame that it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so you can see in his first paintings, and, and one may call these illustrations, because he was really an illustrator more than a painter. Uh, you can see that first street in Tel Aviv. That's how Tel Aviv looked like at the beginning. What you see on the left side is Jaffa, old Jaffa with the towers and the fortification, and then one street with a bunch of houses going all the way to Gymnasia Arzalia. That's Tel Aviv in 1909 when it got started. Tel Aviv was magic, and Gutmann often tied the story of his childhood with the city's infancy. So they were all both infants. Uh, and he began painting and writing about it only in the 30s, uh, but it was all his memories from that period of time. Here's another one documenting the area. There looks to be a little bit more people there, uh, but not too many. Uh, it's not 3.8 million yet. And uh, you can see the gymnasia, you can see the one street and people congregating, you see the ocean and a little bit of the boats coming to the port of Jaffa. A lot of these houses are uh, restored today and they try to keep them in the tradition that they used to be. And that's one of the beauties of some of the neighborhoods in Tel Aviv that you can still go 
and find the houses the way they used to look. Um, when he returned to Israel on a boat, of course they did not have airplanes, uh, transportation at that time, he said, I was reintroduced to the Middle Eastern lights, colors, and plastic values. Six years in Europe, he forgot about it. He was so immersed into post-impressionism. He came back and he said, hmm, the values I saw in my childhood on the streets of Neve Tzedek, Neve Shalom, Jaffa, and Jerusalem, suddenly it all came back to him. It's like coming back to uh, something tasty that you haven't tasted for such a long time. And I say, wow, this is so good. And you see the richness of the colors he's using to, to paint. Neve Tzedek, if you go, if you haven't been, beautiful neighborhood, very fun to walk around the, the streets. And this is a chalutz. Anybody knows what a chalutz is? A pioneer. And uh, you can still see the Herzl Street on the left of the chalutz with the Gymnasia Herzliya and Jaffa in the background. So uh, uh, everybody knows that there is a Dizengoff Street in Israel. You know who Dizengoff was, right? Dizengoff was the first mayor of Tel Aviv. But before he became a mayor in Tel Aviv, he was the person that helped organize the first purchase of land and also the first division of land among the first families that were in the area. So here you can see Mary Dizengoff in the back negotiating with the Arabs to buy land from them. And this is a real photo from 1909, April 1909. That's a date you should remember. A April 1909, next year in exactly that time, we will have 110 years. This is where the 66 families are gathering together to do a lottery to divide the 12 acres of land that were purchased. So, 66 families, 1909. Today, there is Rothschild uh, Boulevard is the first boulevard that they built, built and then Herzl and Chadaam and Yuda Levy, Lindenblum, these are all streets that today are very famous, but these are the first streets that, that were built at that time, and they each received a piece of land by lottery and they started building the city from scratch. And only a, a year later, in May of 1910, they changed the name. So initially it was Achuzat Bait. Nobody remembers that anymore. And then it changed, a year later it changed to Tel Aviv. So Tel Aviv, when the country is 70 years old, Tel Aviv is 110 years old. Um, in 1914, about five years later, it grew to be 247 acres from the first 12 acres to 247, that's 20x, growing very, very fast. Uh, but the growth stopped in 1917, like we said earlier, because of the Ottomans and what they did to the Jews, and they basically expelled them out of this area. This is how it looked in 1909. It's very interesting what you can find uh, uh, photography from, from that period of time. You can see a Jaffa in the distance, and this, this is the first streets of Tel Aviv. There was nothing there. It was empty before that. Uh, the British that uh, really inherited this area, they received the mandate for Israel, uh, did not like it, never really liked it. They fell right in the middle of a conflict. And uh, initially, they were really in support of the Arabs. Uh, and they, um, uh, they did not like what's going on. Uh, they, uh, the Arab mobs started really creating a lot of violence around because they saw the Jewish community growing. 
and the, uh, the British supported them in a big way. Uh, so uh, as a result of the, the riots in Jaffa, a lot of the Jews left Jaffa and moved to now a new city that is just next door to Tel Aviv. So what happened because of the riots, Jaffa started shrinking in population, especially the Jewish population, and Tel Aviv started growing in population because that was the, safest, the safer place to be. Uh, so uh, Tel Aviv population increased from 2000 in 1920 to 34,000 in 1925. In, in five years, it's a huge amount of growth to, to one city. And uh, it's also the businesses in Tel Aviv grew while in Jaffa they were shrinking. Um, and then there was the fifth aliyah, uh, the last legal aliyah, if you wish. Uh, and that happened in the 30s. That's when uh, the Nazis came to power. And some of the Jews that started anticipating what's going to happen started leaving. And in, uh, really many, many tens of thousands of Jews fled Europe at that time and came to Israel. And the population of Tel Aviv now grew to 150,000. I don't know if you know, Tel Aviv was actually bombarded by the Italians during the war, the Second World War, uh, and uh, 137 people died. In 1947, I'm sure you know that, there was the UN partition plan. The UN came up with a proposal because the British basically said, listen, we give up. We don't know what to do with the situation here. The, uh, they came up with a partition plan in which the, the country will be divided to two parts, and there will be the, Israel, the Jewish part and the Arab part, where Tel Aviv, with 230 people now, will go to the Jewish part where Jaffa, with only 54,000 Muslims, will stay with the Arabs. Uh, but as soon as the, this was announced, the Arabs started uh, creating even more violence. And uh, uh, the Jewish people anticipated this going to happen, and they uh, captured Jaffa from the Arabs a minute before the actual war, war of independence started. And remember those empty streets and sand dunes? I don't know if you can find any sand in Tel Aviv anymore other than on, on the beach. Uh, that's Tel Aviv today. Not even today. That's probably five years ago. Uh, every time I go there, and I go there very frequently, I see more high-rises, more buildings. Uh, the skyline keeps changing. But um, uh, the article you see below from a couple of years ago ranked Tel Aviv as among the top 10 action-packed cities in the world for young people. So it's a very popular tourist destination for young people. And going back to our, to our artist, he is documenting the old Tel Aviv, Nevet Sedek, the, the original neighborhoods. And at that time, there were still orange groves growing next to the houses uh, in the city. Uh, so that's what he's looking and seeing around. And he's documenting the people. Like we said, those shepherds, those villagers, those farmers, uh, he, he liked that, he, he saw poetry in what they do, and he documented them. Beautiful paintings and very warm colors. Just a word about Israel, I found it uh, relevant today because we just celebrated 70 years, so I want to remind you, uh, and I'll do it very quickly, what happened uh, 70 years ago, a little more. So we said the Ottomans ruled the area for 400 years until the end of the Second World War. Uh, we talked about the first Aliyah, that uh, first modern Jews came in, mostly Orthodox Jews, and then Herzl. 1896, Herzl published The State of the Jews, 
that was his vision for Zionism, and then he led the first uh, World Zionist Congress in 1897. And then the second Aliyah, uh, the Kishinev pogroms, 40,000 Jews immigrated to Israel, um, and then uh, the, uh, the Arabs, uh, uh, sorry, and then the, the Balfour Declaration, which is a very important moment in history in which the foreign minister, uh, Arthur Balfour, declared that they view in with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Now, it's not that Balfour really sat there and loved the Jews and decided to just go and announce that. There was a lot of work going on behind the scene by a lot of Jewish lobbyists that lived in, in London at the time, and among them are Chaim Weizmann, which later became the first president of, the, of Israel, and uh, Sokolov, there is a lot of stories about Sokolov. They were there and they did a lot of soliciting behind the scenes to help get the, the Balfour Declaration, which became a very fundamental uh, document in the history of, of Israel. Um, another thing that was established at that time was the Jewish Legion. Uh, so, you know, Jews were not really soldiers until then. They were not really fighting. It's the first time that Jews actually joined uh, to help the British fight the Turks. Uh, so the Jewish legion, that, that's what it was, and in fact, uh, Gutmann was volunteering to that. And then the other thing that happened, because of all the riots that the Arabs had, the Jews in Israel started forming uh, what they call Haganah. Anybody knows what the word Haganah means in Hebrew? It means defense. And that was the foundation of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. Until now, we're talking about it as defense, not as attack. So the Haganah was formed at that time to protect the local pop Jewish population from the riots of the Arabs. Uh, and then there was the third Aliyah and the fourth Aliyah and the fifth Aliyah when the Nazis grew, came to power. And then was the white paper. When the Arabs saw all the waves and waves of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands <coughs> of Jews coming to Israel, they rebelled against that. And since the British was more inclined to support the Arabs at the time, they came up with what they called the white paper. The white paper was really a cap on Jewish immigration to Israel. There was a huge amount of limits on how many Jews can come into the country legally. Now, Jews trying to flood Europe, nobody wants them. No country wanted them. Only a few countries in the world accepted them. And now Israel cannot even accept them. So what did they do? They created what they call uh, illegal immigration. And they changed it now to Aliyah Bet rather than Aliyah 6, they call it Aliyah Bet, and Aliyah Bet was the beginning of the illegal immigration, waves of immigration from Europe, of uh, Holocaust survivors that came to Israel illegally in the um, cover of night, mostly. That's how my parents came to Israel. Uh, and it, the population of the Jewish population in Israel kept growing this way. Uh, one of the things that Gutman did a lot in addition to uh, doing all those illustrations and painting the city of Tel Aviv, he also wrote books. Um, and it, it all started in a very interesting way. First of all, he became the illustrator of the first uh, children's uh, newsletter in Israel. The, the prominent uh, newspaper in Israel at that time was Davar. My father used to read Davar. But there was Davar for children. And I was one of the first generations I'm a First, uh, I'm, I'm a, the child of Holocaust survivors. I was the first child born in Israel, and I read the, the, the Davar for Children. And he was the illustrator of Davar for Children, and it looked like this. This is the cover of one of those magazines. And if you go to the 
Gutman Museum, I'll talk about it in a minute, you can find the whole history of the Davarle Iladim. I, I, I had tears when I saw that, because I used to have them on my shelf uh, in the house. Um, but interestingly enough, because he was an illustrator, he was sent to South Africa to paint a portrait of the Prime Minister of South Africa, General Smuts, which was a big supporter of Zionism. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, editor of Davar, Yitzhak Yatsiv was his name, told him, okay, you're going to Africa, I want you to write me letters all the time for the children. So he basically says, okay, I'm going to Africa, I was told to write letters, I don't know what to write, so here's what I did. I sat there in Africa and no letters came out of me. What did I do? I painted a painting, then I opened the speaking mouth to the people and, and animals I painted so they can explain to the children who they are. I did paintings and added explanations and sent them back to Yatsiv. I didn't know what I, that I was writing a book. And as a result of that came a book that became so popular to all the children of Israel. It was called Lubengulu Melech Zulu, Lubengulu the King of Zulu. That's the, and then there was a series of books and then he became such a prolific children's author and he wrote dozens and dozens of books and he received prizes for them because when he wrote books, he wrote them differently than the books that were written until then. He was simple, he was direct, he was cheerful, he was encouraging the children to find something imagining, imagining uh, amazing, wonderful things in hidden places, try to uh, trigger their imagination. But more importantly, more importantly, he wrote to the new Israeli child, which was different than the child of the uh, diaspora. The child that grew in the diaspora that felt defensive about even being a Jew most of the time, now they're in an independent place and he, he was the antithesis of, of the diaspora child. And he wrote to them like a local person um, and that's why people liked him so much. It was a different type of author and a different type of uh, uh, books. Horses. He painted a lot of horses. Now, why horses? Of course, at that time, uh, in 1909, there was a lot, a, lot, a lot of cars on the streets of Tel Aviv, and horses and carriages were very popular. So horses was a big theme for him to paint. And it's amazing to see how they dressed up at the time is reflected through the, this is a wedding. He, he started uh, getting more and more recognition, more and more awards, and during 1948, which was the War of Independence, uh, he was a military illustrator, so he illustrated what he saw around him, the soldiers. Uh, and then uh, in 1959, it was 50 years for Tel Aviv, believe it or not. And he wrote a book called A Small City with a Few People about the city of Tel Aviv. He started getting a lot of prizes, including the Hans Christian Andersen Prize for um, writing children's books. Here are the soldiers during the war that he painted. Now, if you can read Hebrew, you will read up there what he's saying. He's saying, this is a speech I did not give against the destruction of the Gymnasia Herzliya. The Gymnasia Herzliya was completely destructed and instead of it they built a tower. At that time it was the tallest tower in the city of Tel Aviv, Migdal Shalom. Uh, 
Uh, today it's a little midget in the middle of chaos over there, but at that time it was the tallest tower in Tel Aviv. And just to show you the type of poetry that he had, boats were also a very important part of his life, again because transportation to Europe was not by airplane, it was by boat, and he immigrated first time on a boat, and he came back second time on a boat, and he's writing, when we arrived at the shores of Jaffa, the sea hit us with a big, with a big wave, and the foam of the waves nearly reached the deck. Uh, Light-heartedly, I threw myself into the arms of a sailor, and a wide mouth with, a white, with white teeth and pointed mustache stared at me. I felt as though I was diving for the first time into a magical world, strangely, stranger than any I have ever encountered. A child describing children's feeling very authentically, and that's, that's who Gutmann was. And we talk about naive paintings. Uh, you can see the style of naive paintings here, of course. And the strong colors, which are influenced by Matisse. A lot of Jerusalem paintings. Safed. Interesting, uh, interesting analogy here. Talk about two windows. From the window in my father's study, a room furnished with a desk and a chair with armrests, I would see the yard. I used to sit by that window for hours looking out. There in Odessa, I felt trapped sitting by the window. And then he immigrated to Israel and he said, I looked out the window and at once discovered as on a movie screen, the wonders of a strange new world, a world I had never read nor heard about, a world which captivated me and won my heart for good. So he kind of, in Odessa, I felt like a prisoner. In Israel, he felt like a free man. And many times he painted as if he's painting from out, out of a window. Tiberius, Sea of Galilee, Now I can tell you that I had probably double the number of paintings to show. It's just a shame that, you know, for because of time I have to cut some of those paintings, but amazing paintings, I love them. Here are some of the shepherds that we were talking about, painting the Arabs and the, and the, the, the herds that they shepherd. Girls on a balcony, Tel Aviv in the background. Uh, in a way he was a storyteller, and in the, some of these paintings you can see there is a story going on there, and you can Envision the story, right? Another story. Watermelon selling or watermelon eating. And I guess you cannot be a Jewish artist or maybe any artist unless you have some biblical topics to paint. And uh, he, he had a bunch of them. These are all woodcuts, which are very difficult to do if you try the, to do a woodcut. And illustrations. These are kind of leftover napkins that he was illustrating on. I think you can recognize the name in the middle. 
and then in 65, he went back to Europe to study mosaic and came back and started filling the country with mosaics, which is interesting. He did the mosaics on the Shalom Tower lobby, but more importantly, he did the mosaic, which initially was uh, in Bialik Street, and then one day I actually came to see that, and it wasn't there, and I was devastated. Then I discovered that they cleaned it up and moved it to another location in Tel Aviv, in Orchard Street. And it's actually beautiful, because as this is the old city hall of Tel Aviv. That's where it used to be. It's not, it's not there anymore. But if you look at the mosaic itself, it's really his paintings on the mosaic. You see the Jaffa port, you see the houses of Tel Aviv, you see the Gymnasia Herzliya and Herzl Street, all made of, out of little rocks on the mosaic. The boats in Jaffa port. And that's the uh, tower, the Shalom Tower lobby that is also made out of his mosaic. So uh, I think it's the only nice thing about the Shalom Tower, basically. Um, and again, look at these illustrations. You can go and see the, uh, the beach and you can stare at it and find more and more things the more you stare at this. So a quick summary, and I'm going to move to Rubin. Uh, early years, he was in Bessarabia. Um, he, went, uh, he immigrated to Israel. He went to Bezalel school. He didn't like it. He left for Europe. He was influenced by the art in Europe. He came back, started doing book illustrations, uh, started, uh, joined the, the group of Israelis that had distinct Israeli style, went to South Africa, wrote books watercolors, military illustrations, 50 years anniversary to Tel Aviv, mosaics, and so on. So that's Gutman. I'm going to move very quickly to Rubin, and then we can stop and digest what we have seen. Rubin is a slightly different artist, but there is a lot of commonality. And as far as the quality of the art, it's a different type of quality of art, as you, as you will see in a minute. Um, Rubin, 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 uh, was, was born in Romania. And differently than, uh, than Gutman, he was uh, part of a very poor and Hasidic family. He was the eighth child out of 13 children. Um, but he very quickly, very early in his life, it was discovered that he's a good artist and a good illustrator. And his illustrations were published in, in school magazines. And um, in 1912, he immigrated alone to Israel. He left his family behind in Romania and immigrated to Israel to study art, and he went right into Bezalel. There could have been some overlap between him and, uh, and Gutman in, in Bezalel. Um, like Gutman, he didn't like what's going on in Bezalel. He didn't like that, and he actually was one of the founders later on of the group of artists that, that uh, created the Israeli style. In 1916, he went, he went back to Europe, and he returned to Romania and was stuck there because of the war. During the war, it was very difficult to travel inside Europe. So he was stuck in Romania, painted over there in Romania. And then after the war, he traveled to New York. He was, became famous in New York. And then he immigrated back to Israel second time in 1922. If you go to the Rubin Museum, uh, by the way, I'll stop here for a second and say, when you go to Tel Aviv, there are two museums I personally encourage you to visit. These are not the grandiose museum that you'll hear about, like the Tel Aviv Museum, which is fantastic. But this is a jewel. This is a piece of jewel. Uh, uh, the Gutman Museum and the Rubin Museum. It's small. You'll see the Rubin Museum was really the house where he lived. 
and he donated the house and the paintings to the city of Tel Aviv, and it's amazing. And you'll see these paintings in the museum. That's, that's his father, one of his first paintings that he did of his father, uh, sorry, his grandfather, and that's his father and his mother. And all of them are there. And then he painted the beginning of Tel Aviv, and you may see some similarities between this and what Gutmann painted, but later on they started to go different ways in, in their style. Uh, Self-portrait, which surprisingly is very accurate to the way he really looked. And then in 1922, when you remember he emigrated back to Israel, we call it the Wither years, because he was kind of in on the border uh, trying to decide, is, is he going to be focusing on religion or being secular? Is he going to stay in Europe or move back to Eretz Israel? Is he going to focus on art or is he going to be a pioneer and build a country? He was hesitating in all of these things and it reflected uh, in his art. Uh, so you can see on one hand something that may remind the, you the diaspora, on the other one is the Chalutzim, which are strong and tan uh, in, in Israel. Uh, that's a self-portrait from that period of time. Um, we talked about the post-impressionists in, in Europe and any influence that they had on him and others. Uh, in Eretz Israel, he founded, together with those artists I mentioned earlier, a new group of artists that rebelled against Bezalel. They painted with vivid colors. They painted what they saw around. They painted not necessarily religious themes, but they painted the sceneries in Israel, the landscapes of Israel, the building of a country, the, the Arabs uh, and the population in Israel. Uh, he was elected the chairman, the first chairman of this association of first artists. And then in 1928, he met his wife, Esther, and uh, he met her on a cruise. What do I mean by that? So he was in New York uh, in one of his shows, and on the way back from New York, you go back on a boat, right? He met a lady that, uh, a young lady that won the trip to Israel. It was almost like uh, birthright today. He, she won a trip to visit Israel, and she was on that boat together with him. He met her, and they got married. And. Uh, uh, they had uh, also uh, a child very quickly. Interestingly enough, he, he signed his name, his first name always in Hebrew, his last name always in English. We talked about Rousseau, one of the influences, right? So who was Rousseau? Rousseau was a French post-impressionist. He was a primitive style, naive style type of painter. He said that he didn't need a teacher, he didn't go to art school, he said nature is the teacher. And if you've seen these paintings before, you will, rem you will know who Rousseau is. He painted a lot of family portraits. And there was an orderly way of painting a family portrait. There is always the family sitting in a specific order. There is always the family pet or the dog uh, in the picture. At that time in Israel, Israel became uh, a melting pot for a lot of cultures. We talked about the immigration waves. We have Yemens, but we have Russians and we have Germans, and we have British influence, and the culture in Israel was a mishmash of all those cultures coming together. And you see the influence of that in everything, in poetry, in, in theater, in uh, music, uh, and also in art. And uh, one of the first um, theaters in Israel was Habima. Anybody been to Habima in Tel Aviv? Uh, so Habima was actually founded in Moscow in 1905 by the guy of, uh, by name of Nahum Tzemach. And it was one of the first theaters in Moscow, communist Moscow, 
that is uh, doing shows in Hebrew and in Yiddish. But of course they were persecuted and it wasn't fun for them and they were trying to escape uh, Russia, which was difficult at that time. And they had a series of events or shows to do in the US in 1926 from which they decided not to come back. So they really escaped Russia this way. And some of them, not all of them, decided to go to Israel and have a tour in Israel. And they had two shows in Israel that became so successful that they decided to stay in Israel. So the first two theater shows in Israel was Habib, the foundation of Habima in Israel, which today, if you don't know, is the National Theater uh, of Israel. One of those shows was the Dibuk. And the lady, which was the first lady of the theater of Israel, was playing Hanale, and she was Hana Rubina. Hana Rubina, oh by the way, this is Habima later on, and this is Habima today, the new Habima, which was just refurbished a few years ago. But this is a Hana Rubina playing Hanale in Hadibuk, painted by Reuven Rubin, painting her. And we talked about Bezalel now many times, and Boris Schatz was the founder of Bezalel. And even Herzl, in the original Zionist vision, had a vision about there should be an art that represents the new country of Israel. So art was part of the culture. If you create a new culture, you need to also bring art into it. So Bezalel was founded with that idea of establishing an art in Israel. But the initial culture or the initial style that they pushed was very conservative, was really more uh, focused on the diaspora, on the religion that they brought, uh, religion origins that they brought into Israel, which is why the young generation of artists that evolved rebelled against that and created a new art style. And if you remember how Impressionism started, it was a young generation of artists that didn't like classic art, and they said, no, 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 we don't want to just paint religious topics and, uh, and historical topics, we want to paint people on the beach. Until now, nobody painted people on the beach. We wanted to use normal colors. It doesn't have to be photorealistic. That's how Impressionism started, and that's how the new Eretz Israel art style also started. And those artists, painted, as you can see, a, a collection of examples, Ariel Lubin, uh, Israel Paldi, Pinchas Litovinsky, these are now completely different than what used to be an Israeli Jewish origin type of art. This is more Eretz Israel type of art. Bezalel movement focused on Judaism. The new Eretz Israel art movement, the rebels, they focused on current and now in Eretz Israel. So again, from the Rubin Museum. This is the center panel of a three-panel painting that is very symbolic. It's called the fruit of the land. And what you can see here is that a bunch of different types of people, because it's a melting pot, are enjoying the fruit of the land. And in the center one, you can see a Yemenite family from the diaspora. You can see the halutz in the right, very strong, very tan. And you can see the wife in the middle. But if you look at the old, all the three pieces, on the two sides, you can see the Arabs. And for in his vision, we all share the fruit of the land. We all live together in a harmony, which was his, his world. This is Rubin. Uh, these are some, some of the paintings of Tel Aviv that are, you can see similarities in style because it's also a naive type of style uh, of Tel Aviv, similarities to Gutman. 
Jerusalem. So if you own one of these paintings today, it will be worth between half a million to a million. So it's not worth as much as a Picasso would be worth, but uh, from an Israeli artist, it's one of the top today for collectors. Does anybody own one to make sure for donations? You own one. So Galilee, Tiberias, Jerusalem, very popular <coughs> topics to be painted. But what you see unique is the population that he injects in there. Today you will not see the Arabs and donkeys and the carriages on the streets of Tiberias. Uh, that's, how, that's how it looked like at that time. And there were more water in the Sea of Galilee than there is today. Now pay attention to the olive trees. We'll, you'll see more of them coming, but one of his uniquenesses is how he painted the olive trees. Uh, the painting out of a window was a theme that was very popular at that time, and he had a lot of paintings that he paints as if he's looking out of a window. It's kind of a technique that makes it a little bit, gives, gives perspective to this. This is uh, Tel Aviv and Jaffa. You can see the port, you can see the boats. Now, if you remember, he grew up uh, from in a religious Hasidic type of family. And he, when he visited Meiron in Israel in the north, he met the Hasidim over there and fell in love. And he started painting them also because it, he could uh, associate with them because that's his origin. And one of his influences was Matisse, one of his influences were Rousseau, one of them was Modigliani, and um, you can see all of them here. Matisse with the strong colors, uh, Modigliani with the elongated faces, and of course uh, the fish also. We can talk for a long time about why fish, but fish is kind of happiness and life and so on. This is an interesting family portrait. So we said that he initially immigrated to Israel alone. But later on, his some of his family joined him. He had 13 children in the family, so 12 brothers and sisters. Two of them joined him in Israel, and his mother too. And they created a family portrait. And what you see here is that they sit in a very organized fashion, like they're in a studio. Although they are not in a studio, they are outdoors, because you see the olive trees in the background. And you see the family pet. Can you see that? Yeah. Uh, but what you also see is that he is assimilated. He wears slippers and simple clothing, and he has his brush in his hand, and so on. And his brother and sister and wife are very formal. They just came back from Europe. They're still European in style. They still have not assimilated into the country of Israel. And what do you think about that? That's Rousseau. Do you see the influence? Oh. Although the pet, the pet is not uh, the same type. Uh, again, uh, that's an out-the-window type of thing. The, the face of Rubin here is actually a sculpture. It's a painting of a sculpture that was made for him by one of his friends. And I'll show you the original sculpture in a minute. But I want to ask you, what do you think the holiday is? There is a holiday going on here. Purim. You're the first one that gave me the correct answer right from the beginning. Because everybody says Yom Atzmaut. 
And it's not Yom Atzmaut because at that time in Israel, every holiday had the, the flags. Um, it's trying to be a new country. But you see the, the noisemaker over there that tells you that it's Purim. See that? That's him and his wife uh, now that they're engaged. And you can see that he always is the artist, always holds the brushes in his hand even when he's getting engaged. I'm an artist, but when in my wedding, I did not have my brushes with me. <laughs> what do you see, what do you see uh, on the right side of the balcony in the background? You see Jaffa, right? And you see the boats going to the port. And you see the airplanes, which is kind of interesting because it's early days of flying. These are still not commercial airplanes, but there are airplanes already. This is me at the Rubin Museum, and I can't help but encouraging you again. It was some few years ago. I think I had more hair at that time. But it's a, you can get an impression of how big the painting is. It's, it's not a small painting. He did a lot of woodcuts also. And uh, Jewish themes, Israeli themes in the woodcuts. That's a self-portrait on a woodcut. If we go back to a little bit onto the history of Israel, uh, 70 years ago, 1945, uh, the UK is in conflict with us. Uh, thousands of refugees trying to come. The British government saying, sorry, I don't know what to do anymore. Uh, the UN approved the, uh, the uh, divided uh, country. And then this is an interesting letter I found that says, this government has been informed that the Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine and recognition has been requested by the provisional government thereof. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority in the new state of Israel, signed by Harry Truman, May 14, 1948. And of course we know on May 14 was the declaration. Why May 14? Because on May 15 was the last day of the British mandate. So they declared the country before, the, one day before the British mandate is going to expire. And call it Israel and then a day later on May 15, Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Yemen and Jordan and Lebanon and Syria uh, all launched attacks on Israel. Uh, and then we know what happened. It lasted for about a year. Um, we established new borders after the end of the war. We call them today the Green Line. We still have the Green Line on some of those maps. Uh, the first government was the labor government run by Ben-Gurion, which was the first prime minister. The population rose from 800,000 in 1948 to 2 million in 1958. Huge floods of Jews going from all over the world now to Israel. So a lot of war, a lot of fighting. What do artists do during the war? The artists usually are not polit politicians. I've seen that in many of the artists I'm talking about. Here's what he wrote in his book. First about the riots. He said, in 1936, there was yet another outbreak of Arab riots, which started in Jaffa and spread throughout the country. Again, bloodshed and violence. Nonsensical as it seemed, I decided to hold an exhibition in Jerusalem. This was my way of fighting the gloom created by the situation. The press Jerusalem welcomed the event as an unexpected gift. 
In spite of the general dire situation, the show was well received with many visitors and good sales. So he is fighting the war in his own way with art. And he's trying to focus attention not on politics, but on art. The other one, even more interesting, the UN decision was the signal for the most violent Arab attacks in the country the country had known. The Arabs started to kill, burn, destroy, and loot. The street where we lived became part of the front line. We became accustomed to sounds of sniper bullets and bombs from Jaffa. We had one room with a partition, and behind it, I took my easel and strangely enough found that I was painting with renowned vigor. You can say whatever you want. He was hiding from the war in a little room and painting. That's how he dealt with the situation. It's kind of a contradiction. His difficulty to accept what's going on around him or his uh, optimistic view of the world. Uh, I'm going to skip this because he's just receiving more and more recognition, more and more prizes, and, and traveling the world. And in one point, he became actually the uh, Israeli uh, uh, emissary envoy to Romania because he was from Romania, and he spent there three years, which was interesting to him. Then I'll focus more on the art, and just look at the richness of colors that you see here, which is fantastic. Would love to have any of these hanging anywhere in my house for sure. And that's him and his son and his wife. And you can see that they're all now very assimilated into the country. You see the son is wearing sandals. The wife is no longer wearing formal things. Uh, but the pet is still there. And the brushes are still in his hand. He is always the artist. And uh, this is, probably will remind you, the Last Supper. This is a Passover. The Last Supper was also a Passover Seder. This is a Passover Seder. This is the first Passover Seder in the new country of Israel, 1949. Now, it's very symbolic, right? It's, what is Passover? It's going from slavery to freedom. This is the first celebration of freedom in a new country. But his Passover Seder is very interesting. If you look at who is invited to the table, uh, on the left you see Jesus. I'm not sure why he is there, but he is there. And then you see the diaspora, you see the melting pot, you see the immigrants, you see the Russian immigrant, you see the people from Yemen, you see the, the soldiers, you see the rabbi and his wife and daughter, uh, you see the Ethiopians, and you see him and his wife and his son uh, sitting at the table. And almost like in the Last Supper, there in the background there is Jerusalem. Here also there is Jerusalem in the background. I believe it's a very interesting, beautiful painting. Now we, we're gonna go quickly into, into the olive trees in, in just a second. Sea of Galilee. Oh, this is the sculpture I mentioned to you that was uh, created for him by Hannah Orloff, his friend. Looks very much like him. He painted uh, a huge painting of olive trees for the Knesset. And you can see the Knesset, and it's hanging in the background in the Knesset. You can see how big it is as, as he's painting it. And you can see the actual painting right here. Biblical topics, he had them too, many of them. 
Oh, you can see the signature, right? What I told you, Hebrew and English mixed. Again from the museum, pomegranates on my window. Of course, Jerusalem doesn't look like this anymore today. Many more houses, but it's beautiful. And here are the olive trees. A fantastic way that nobody's painting olive trees the way he's painting them. You can see the people actually picking the olives. He was pretty good with flowers too, I would say. It makes it more interesting when, in addition to the flowers, you see the people in the background uh, or sitting on a donkey and holding flowers and playing the flute at the same time. And the flute was very prominent at that time because of the shepherds and the herds and the arrows like the flute, so I grew up playing the flute because of that. And the horses. And the people always have the the fish with them. These are peace offerings or offerings, um, similar style paintings here. And he was a little bit of a storyteller also, similar to Gutmann. So you can see the story here, feeding the donkey while getting a shave in the, from the barber. That's his studio. Backgammon. Anybody plays backgammon here? Him and his wife, Esther. And he received, uh, here is receiving for Miguel Alon, which at that time was the Minister of Education and Culture, uh, the Israel Prize, which was the highest 
prize you can receive in Israel. Uh, he, he died in Tel Aviv at the age of 81 in 1974. Uh, before he died, he donated his house to the city of Tel Aviv, including dozens and dozens of paintings that were in the house, and that's where the Rubin Museum is right now on Bialik Street. You should go see it. I want to read to you what Bialik wrote, ab wrote about him after he died. I know you don't know Hebrew, so I tried to translate it myself. And I said, Eretz Israel in Rubin's paintings, that's what Bialik said, is like he sees it, a hall with its mountains and towns, parks and valleys, elderly and women, Jews and Arabs, donkeys and goats, rocks and plants, and mostly when it all blends together, unexpected combinations happen on the white canvas. This is the legend of Eretz Israel. So he's, he's really one of the founders, one of the founders of the new Israeli art, one of the person that, people that documented how a country evolved, how a city evolved, very prominent artist uh, in Israel. He painted Israel the way he saw it, uh, not the way it actually was. He painted kind of an idealistic, optimistic type of Israel, but he at the same time represented all kinds of uh, types of Israelites, if you want, locals and Arabs and Halutzim and farmers and rabbis and Jews, uh, uh, Jerusalem Jews and Hasidic Jews and Yemenites and business people and artists, all of them have a role in his type of paintings, a very complex multicultural environment and he was able to find a way to document all of that. And he always kind of was in between the two worlds, the old world that he came from and the new world of a new country that he was part of it as, as he started. And a quick summary, so the early years, he grew up in Romania, immigrated to Israel alone without a family, uh, came, went back to, went to Bezalel, didn't like it, left, went to Paris, was stuck in Romania during the war. Um, after that, he came back to Israel, established the distinct new Israeli style as a chairman, started getting recognitions and awards worldwide. Uh, he was a diplomat in, uh, in Romania. Um, he uh, did stained glass, uh, he did art in the Knesset, uh, and uh, he, he donated his house at the end to, to Tel Aviv. Thank you very much. Those of you that are interested, I, I'm an artist myself, not as good in any way, but you can go to gurisark.com, you can find some of my art over there, and you'll see some influences from the artists that, I'm, that I talk about. Thank you. Uh, we have time for just a few questions. Anybody has any questions? There's a lot of material to cover. I know, just by reduction, on our first trip to Israel at CSP, we did spend some time with Goodman's art and the uh, learning about the history of Tel Aviv through the art, and we yeah. went to find those mosaics. Uh -huh. uh, but it would have been nice to have your lecture first. Oh, okay. But uh, well, it was great to see that you can actually see it. It is, it is buried in weird and unusual locations. Unless you know where to look, what you're yeah. looking at, you don't understand the significance of that art. So those of you that know a little bit about Tel Aviv, there is a very good street for tourists. It's called Rothschild Street. Uh, Rochester Street is full of houses in the architecture of the Bauhaus, which was a German influence. And it was all now refurbished and became a beautiful street with a lot of history in it. And if you walk on that street all the way to the end, you will see the, the mosaic that we talked about. So that's worth saying. The other thing is, if you know Jeremy Siegel, he used to live in our community, made Aliyah in Israel. He uh, opened up his crates of boxes a few months ago just to get his apartment ready, and he found that he has two Ruben Ruben paintings. 
And so I emailed him, because he saw the ad, and he said, that's so funny, I have these in my living room. I said, you better open them right away and tell me if they're originals or not. He had no idea that if they're originals, they're worth half a million dollars each. You never know what you have in your house. Um, he did send me a picture that I'll share with you of his mom and his sister meeting with Ruben Ruben in 1960. That was kind of cool. Which makes me think that maybe it was original. Well, don't tell him. I'll go over there and just take it off his hands. <laughs> okay, sorry. Time for a few quick questions. Uh, just getting back to that picture of the uh, first Passover in Jerusalem, Ruben. How did they know that was a picture of Jesus? Did he specify oh. describe it somewhere, or you just based on the uh, it? It's a good question, and a lot of time uh, it's hard to find information. The artist is dead; you cannot talk about it, and, and most of the times the artists don't talk about it. You find it in two different ways. He had a biography, a book that he wrote, and some of the things about his paintings you can find in the biography, and the the rest is um, speculation by art critics. And the more I read, and I read a lot, art critic, the more I find that they all con contradict each other. <laughs> so uh, it's better not to read too much, because the second one, the third one that you read from may not agree with the first one. This one, I, I believe it's pretty obvious, because they're trying to imitate the, uh, the Last Supper. Uh, so uh, if it's not Jesus, who can it be? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jesus was to sit in the center. Yeah, but in his case, the rabbi sits in the center, right? So it's his interpretation or his style. Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. Well, yes, he was. He was kind of a cult leader in a way. Were his works in oils and in watercolor? Which of them? Uh, Goodman did more in watercolors than in oils, although he did both, and, and uh, Rubin did more in oils uh, than in watercolor, but they also did both. People want to buy their works. Where would they go? I assume they're for, are they all uh, private collections these days? Yeah, it's either in museums or in private collections. And uh, to get an, an original piece of Rubin right now, um, you have to write a big check and go to a private collector to buy it from. And are there? You, you said they had different uh, they had different materials they worked in with yeah. the uh, carvings and the mosaics. So I, I assume those were minor parts of the work, or were they major? Minor, minor. The major was the paintings. Right. Any quick questions? Uh, your work is available for sale? Yes, it is available for sale. You can uh, contact me via the website. I can give you a card if you want. Yes, I do. I do sell my art. I have been selling my art for 30 years now. Yeah. One of the things that you are, are they? They're less expensive than Rubin. Let's say positive themes. Oh, themes. Yeah. Oh, themes, uh, it's mostly music because I love music. So I combine my, my love of Jesus art and music. It's mostly figurative. I don't paint like, uh, landscapes a lot. So it's more like my feelings are trying to capture moments, I'm trying to capture expressions. Um, and I'm trying to express some influences. The one on the left at the top is the uh, Chagall influence one of my most favorite artists and the lecture I also give. What's the name of your biomedical company? Uh, Cortex Labs. Cortex? Cortex? Right, Labs. Did his children get involved in the arts? Did his children get involved? Uh, not really, no. Uh, it's interesting because I don't think it went, uh, they don't have it in their genes, I don't know. Uh, the curator uh, for the Rubin Museum is actually his, his daughter-in-law, not his son. 
Uh, so his son is a businessman, and his daughter-in-law is running the museum. Is anybody going to Israel this summer? You just came. You just came uh, I was saying, uh, when I go to Israel on trips, I like to go places other people don't go. So if we ever do a trip back to Israel, we will make sure to go to these two museums, yeah. just so you know. <laughs> Please go. You will not regret it. At the same few time. years. At the same time. Okay. Any other quick questions? Where is the Goodman? Where are the museums? The, uh, the Goodman Museum is in the Vetsedek, one of the first neighborhoods oh, nice. of Tel Aviv. It's a nice place. And then the the Ruby Museum is on Bialik Street, right off of R&B, next to the Bialik's house, actually. Yeah. Your neighbors. They were there, couldn't get in. Couldn't get in. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> Okay, so I think we're going to wrap it up. I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank Agori for making it sound We continue celebrating 70 years of Israel with Israel Food Music on June 5th. And we'll be launching our 18th year program. So keep your eyes out for some emails. Have a great rest of your uh, first Sunday in May. See you all in a few weeks. Thank you.